There is a popular maxim that generally has been attributed to a bunch of people, Lord Acton, Edmund Burke, a half dozen other luminaries, and you've probably heard it before, right? It's a, it goes like this. All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, right? I mean, we've heard, you've heard that before, right? Uh, basically, uh, it's, it's a rallying cry for, for, for many people, and we look at that, we say, you're right, and we, as we just said, a few people, amen. Some of you tired of standing on the sidelines at some point in your life said, you know what, I'm getting involved. I'm going for it. I, I you know, was kind of, kind of been sitting back. You kind of got that, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you know, thing where he, he said, listen, if you're going to, you, you know, try, try your hardest. I was looking at the quote this morning. Just this morning, it popped into my head. And, and don't be one of those, he said, those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. They're always on the sideline. They see things that need to be done. They see injustice. And they say, you know what? I can't. You know, I, I, I can't do it. Some of you have gotten involved. Some of you are doing some stuff. Some of you are working down in, you know, uh, with, with Renew Life Center there in Patterson and doing other things. Some of you are signing up already for our, our next trip uh, in, in November to uh, uh, Guatemala. We're looking forward to that. I'm going on the one this year. Hoo-hoo. I'm going this year. I'm looking forward to it. Um, now, there are two things when you hear that statement. When you hear that statement, all that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Two things are assumed in that statement. Number one, that there is evil in the world. Now, we may not agree on what evil is exactly on the definition of evil. But look, when I, the first thing I do in the morning, when I get up, I, I open up my news feed. And, you know, I'm out walking the dog, and I'm looking at what's going on. I can't tell you how many times I have said to myself, when I'm, I'm out walking the dog, and I'm reading the news feed, I'm going, you got to be kidding me. Really? And it's not even so much the murders and the mayhem and everything else that we, we expect. It's like our government. It's the laws. It's what people say. It's things. It's just, it's like kind of craziness. I say it all the time. time. Look, we may not agree on what you know, evil is, but we know there's evil out there. It's in that statement. Now, the second thing that we assume from this statement is that unless good men and good women, again, we could disagree or agree on what a good man or good woman is, unless they do something to stand up against evil, it's going to triumph. Now, we look, okay, now, those of you... Most of us are Christians. I get it. We win in the end. I read the end of the book. I, 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 I skipped ahead. Okay, we do win at the end. But what I'm talking about is, you know what? A lot of times, because people do nothing, bad things proliferate. Bad things happen. And good men and good women who say, you know what? Wrong, right. People who have a sense, a little bit of a sense of black and white, which now it just doesn't it seem like our whole culture is gray. It's like everything is gray, a different shade of gray. No, this is right, and this is wrong, and unless those people stand up and say, you know what, uh, this is right, and we're not, we're not going here, and it doesn't matter the time, the culture, anything else, you know, it, it, things start to fall apart. Evil starts to, you know, proliferate. Evil will win. And there's, there's uh, something else in the statement when I was looking at that, and I was thinking about it this week. It doesn't say it in the statement, but it's kind of implied. Uh, when you stand up against evil... You're doing something that's very difficult. It's not easy. Because it seems that most of the tide is going in that direction. So if you stand up against something, you know, Martin Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. 
listen, the chances are very high that people will come out of the woodwork and try to bury you. They'll try to bury you. Um, you know, you could stand out and do slogans. You know, there's a lot of picketing lately. We look at our nation. If you, you know, as I said, if you look at the news feed, it's very easy to do slogans and hold up signs and picket. But i got to tell you something. Um, it wasn't so easy like in the 1960s. I was reading Martin Luther King uh, Jr.'s uh, uh, Letters from a Birmingham Jail again uh, this week. If, if you've never read that, it's one of, it's one of the great, it is one, I'm going to say this, one of the great documents in American history, if you've never read that. And I, I was thinking back then, and I said to myself, you know, people who picketed back then, people who held up signs and did slogans in 1963 in Alabama, uh, that was different than in front of Trump Tower today. See, because if you did it back then, you might get killed. You might get killed. See, see slogans are easy. Picketing is easy. I got to tell you, a lot of times. But what happens when, you know, your health and welfare and your families, you know, may be on the line, when you really stand up against evil? So why do it? Why get in the fray? And if I get in the fray, how can I know that God's going to be with me? Because I, I, Pastor Tim, we know you're a pastor. You're probably going to say we should do that. Okay, well then what's, you know, what, where's God in that whole thing? Now, let me just say, uh, we, let's, let's get into the text. If you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Esther chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, the Bible in front of you is your Bible. Take it home. We want you to take it home. Um, now, there's a little story at the end of chapter 2, which uh, uh, Liz did not read because it was long. Everybody, you know, it's just long. It's standing up. And, but it's a very, very interesting story at the end of chapter 2 where we see that hey, uh, Mordecai, uh, again, we're picking up in this story of Esther. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, if you don't, uh, sorry, try to get up to speed, listen to it uh, on, uh, on the Internet. Um, basically, uh, Esther and Mordecai, her uncle, Esther's been chosen as queen. Uh, Mordecai is her uncle, kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. And it's, it says that in chapter 2 at the end there that he's sitting at the gate. Mordecai has taken his position as sitting at the gate. Now, we're not going to go into this story a whole lot right now, but basically, it doesn't mean that he's loitering. It doesn't mean that he's, a, you know, he's having a smoke with his friends and they're watching the girls go by. That is not what they're doing at the gate. When that term is used in Scripture, sitting at the gate, it means that someone is part of the government. They're part of the appar uh, you know, apparatus of government. Uh, and he was. This is the first time we find out that Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, really was, we don't know what, what position he held, but he was part of the government there in the Persian Empire, this vast empire, the Persian Empire. We don't know what his responsibility was, but he was a civil servant. And as fate would have it, fate, you know, he hears about this plot to assassinate the king. He relays it to Esther. Esther relays it to Xerxes. It's found out to be true. The guys are... are executed, and you know what? That's the end of the story. It's kind of stuck there. It doesn't matter right now for what we're going to talk about that much today, but we need to keep it in mind because it's going to be very, very, very important coming up, okay? Uh, but just know that even with that, as we just saw that video, God was working behind the scenes. He just happened to hear. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time. See, God was still working. His name is not mentioned, but he's behind the scenes. The light is shining in, always for good purposes, always in the lives of his people. Now, as the story continues in chapter 3, we are introduced to a man by the name of Haman. 
Now, at the beginning of chapter 3, we see Xerxes the king elevating this guy Haman to second in the kingdom. Now, remember the, the, uh, uh, the, thing we had, the, the screen we had of the vastness of the Persian Empire a couple of weeks ago. The Persian Empire was the largest empire, this is all in review, the largest empire that the world had ever seen. Basically, except for Greece, which, you know, Xerxes tried to take care of, but he couldn't do a good job on that. Persia had most of the known world then. It was a huge, vast, vast empire. And Haman, we don't know why, but Haman is elevated to the number two spot in all the kingdom. Now, folks, um, you may not like President Trump's cabinet picks, but you know what's something that you have to agree with? All of these people, if you look at their resumes, they've all been successful. I mean, as, as far as the world counts as success, wildly successful people uh, in their previous lives. And all of them, and again, you may disagree, no, he's an idiot, I hate that guy. They, they're smart people. Every single one of them are smart people. They would score, uh, from what I could tell, from what they've done before, they would score pretty high in an IQ test, I think. And, and all of them also, because they got really high in their previous lives, something else you might you probably know about them, they're survivors. Anybody who has been in the high-stakes games of business or academics, or you got near the top and kind of peered over to see what they were doing, you understand that, you know what, to get to the place where they got... Uh, you know, they made some, you know, amazing sacrifices, and they are survivors. doesn't mean that people who don't make it up there, sometimes people don't make it up to the top. You know why? Because they see what it's going to take, and they don't want to go there. They, they see the sacrifice it's going to take, and they see the damage maybe it would cause, possibly, in their lives. And they say, no, you know what? I'm going here, and I'm not going any further. But they see over, and they could see what it took to get to those higher echelons of, you know, the company or the school or whatever it is. Now, um, I, let me just say this. Looking at Haman, and we're going to be looking at Haman a little bit today, um, the guy's no dummy. If he's the number two man in all the kingdom, then um, uh, the guy, you have to say, is very, very smart. But we're also going to see something else today. He's very, very evil. And folks, I have to tell you right now, when you put those two combinations together, that is a lethal combination. When you put smart with evil and you combine them together. See, if you put dumb and evil together, dumb will be found out really quick. Hey, they'll do something stupid. You know what? It's the crook who does the bank robbery and, you know, you know, takes his mask off before he leaves, you know, or something like that. You say, okay, dummy, we pick you up three blocks from, from the bank. They'll, 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 do, you know, they'll do something stupid. But when you put really smart together with really evil, it is a deadly combination. And the world has seen a number of times over when you put smart and evil together. We've seen it. Part of being the number two guy in the kingdom, uh, also, you need to know, is that whenever you walk in a room, or whenever you walk down the street, people do this. They bow down. They kind of bow down to you. Uh, literally. I mean, they do not just, you know, figuratively. When you walk into the conference room, everybody stands up, everybody bows. You know, and then they take their seat and the business gets going. And this is how it went with Haman after he was elevated. When he walked into the room, everybody stood and everybody bowed. Everyone except Mordecai. 
Mordecai wouldn't do it. Mordecai refused to bow. Now, there are several reasons why that may have been. Uh, you know, different people down through history writing about the book of Esther. There's a couple of reasons why it could, ha- it, it could have been. Now, notice that he mentions in chapter 3 when he uh, introduces Haman, the writer, uh, and Liz, very good job on the names. I, you know, I fumble over the names all the time. Our readers have been doing a magnificent job the last three weeks with the names, okay? Anyway, uh, when he introduces Haman, he calls him Haman the Agagite. Now, there's no mistake that he mentioned that. He, had to men- he, he mentioned it for a specific reason, and here's why. When Israel came out of Egypt, again, a little history, when Egypt came out of Egypt, remember the ten plagues? Remember the sea, the Red Sea, all that stuff? And they went out. Remember that? When they came out of Egypt after the Exodus, they ran into a people. The first people they came upon was a people called the Amalekites. And the Amalekites have the distinction of being the first official enemy of Israel. First official enemy. And they tr- what they tried to do there in the desert was to wipe the Jews from the face of the earth. They tried to annihilate them. And God, you know, Exodus chapter 17, you can read that story, tried to destroy them. They couldn't. But as a result, God cursed the Amalekites, and he ordered that their memory be blotted out from the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 25, Numbers 24. You can read about that. Now, fast forward a few hundred years to the reign of Israel's first king, who was, remember his name? Saul, the first king. And Saul, we find out, I'll tell you, you don't have to look back, was a son of Kish. Um, Side note, Mordecai was a son of Kish. What a coincidence, right? What a coincidence, okay? Uh, One of many, many coincidences that happened. Anyway, God sent King Saul to wipe out the Amalekites once and for all when he became king. And Saul... Gaining the victory, wanted a trophy. So he kept the king, Agag, alive, and he took some of the spoils, even though God said, no, you know, this is an evil, evil people, and they need to be wiped out, all these people, and don't take any spoils. Okay, when you go in, you're going to see all these things glittering at you. Don't take anything. And Saul decided to take, you know, some for, his, for himself, and he took some of the sheep and some of the other things. Even God, God said, direct disobedience. Directly against what God had said, it was the beginning of the end for Saul because when Samuel showed up, the prophet, he killed Agag on the spot. That was the beginning of a bitter rivalry and a deep antagonism between the Amalekites and the Israelites. Now, now, half a world away, we have a relative of Saul's and a relative of Agag meeting again. What a, what a coincidence. Again, what a coincidence. Now, some people say that the reason, you know, he wouldn't bow, Mordecai, is because of that historic, you know, antagonism. That he couldn't bring himself to, you know, look at this guy who's standing next to the king who tried to wipe out his people, who was bitter enemies. And he just, you know, it, it, it just was, a, it was an extension of this bitter rivalry that had always existed. Some people think that, and I say, well, you know what, yeah. Maybe that, that, that is true. Other people think that, um, you know, even as we said last week, 
Mordecai and Esther had settled in quite nicely to Persia. Remember we were talking about that, how they, they got kind of comfortable in Persia. Uh, their people could have gone back under Cyrus, back to, the, the, you know, back to Jerusalem, back, back to their historic you know, uh, country, but they decided to stay in Persia. Why? Because it was nice. They had malls. They had running water. It was kind of cool. You know, we, like, we like living here. We're very, very comfortable here in Persia. Okay? So they were comfortable there. But even though they were comfortable... Uh, there was something about the voice of Moses and Joshua and all these prophets down for hundreds of years saying, you never bow the knee to an idol. You never bow the knee to wood or to stone or to gold or to silver or to any other flesh or blood. And perhaps he interpreted the king's order to bow before, you know, Haman as, as that. But maybe, maybe there was something else. Afoot. Uh, I'm doing a study with Beth Moore, ladies. I'm doing a Beth Moore study. Yes, I know you'd be very happy about that. I feel the estrogen just flowing through me as I do the study. Um, uh, I've never done a Beth Moore study. I haven't really read much about Beth Moore. Our, our women's group do a lot of Beth Moore studies. I said, you know what? As I'm, I, you know, I try to get my, all my material together before a series. Say, I'm going to use this. I'm going to use this. I'm not going to use this. I'm going to use this. And I said, I'm going to do a Beth Moore study. So I'm, I'm doing a Beth Moore study. She does a really good job in Esther chapter 3. And um, uh, very, she makes a very, very interesting statement. Beth Moore does. She said this. She said, I'm not sure we're ever in a more uncomfortable predicament than when we discern evil in someone who other people esteem highly. I'm, never, I'm not sure we're ever in a more uncomfortable predicament than when we discern evil in someone uh, who other people esteem. And I thought about that for a long time. In fact, I thought about it all week. Now, perhaps Mordecai, the reason why he wouldn't bow was that he's looking at this guy and he's saying, this guy's no good. You know, I've heard so much about this guy. I'm in the government. I heard about this guy. This guy, not only isn't he good, this guy's evil. You know, I've heard things, I've seen game things. This guy is a bad seed. And how can I go along with everyone else and bow my knee to who I think is evil? Many years later, the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Christians at Ephesus, told them this. He's, you know, uh, you know far from joining in and paying homage to evil and the men who do evil. He said, he said you, you people should expose fruitless deeds of darkness. Don't go along with it. Expose it. And I'm not saying, you know what? Judging everybody. How are you doing this? You know, we're the morals police. Hey, get out of there. You know, you're not supposed to be doing that kind of stuff. It's not like stuff like that. It's by our lives, by our very lives, we're kind of like a silent people. It's, a, it's almost like a silent judgment of people like, gee, I wonder if I really should be involved in this. Not, 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 not standing up on high and pointing a finger down. But when we live lives that God call us to, we expose the evil deeds of darkness. That's what Paul was saying. Now listen, there's only a few times in Scripture when someone goes directly, I mean, you know, directly, directly against the powers that be, and every time I was looking at it this way, every time they go against the word of the powers that be, they're always put in a deficit position. They're always in trouble. They're always like paying for it. There's always huge consequences sometimes with their lives. We know that's the case with all, you know, all but one of the apostles. They all died. And m many of the church fathers, the early church fathers, they put themselves out. They said, you know, Martin Luther, here we stand. We could do no other. And there were tremendous dire consequences because they wanted to do the right thing. Now, God calls his people to be a different type of people. In the New Testament, Jesus used the metaphor 
for his followers of being salt and light in a dark and decaying generation. And I've looked at that many, many times. In fact, if you look at my Bible, uh, the Sermon on the Mount section, it's like all falling apart. It's like, it's like I have to turn it like this now, this part. I've got to turn it like this. I looked at it so many times. And he calls them salt and light. Why would he call them salt? Why would Jesus look at his disciples and, call them, and, and try to convince them that they were salt? Well, among other things, and there's a lot of reasons why I think, but I think one of the main reasons is that salt back then was a main preservative. Uh, you know, don't forget, uh, unless the guy, you know, killed the cow and he wanted to eat the whole cow that day, which is pretty tough to do, you had to, you had to if you want to hang on to it for like maybe a week or two, and, we, you know, we got a wedding next week and we put out leftovers and stuff like that, what would you have to do? You had to salt the meat. What did you do when you went to the Sea of Galilee and you're a businessman? You're a Peter, and you're a John, and you're, you're, you know, you're pulling. you got a good catch. You know, we took in 30 fish today. What do you do? And, we, and you're a business guy, and you want to bring it down to Jerusalem, down south. No refrigeration. There's nothing like that. There's no ice. You salted the meat. And you know what the, you know what the salt does? It retards the bacteria that's in the meat uh, when, it, when it dies. That starts to spread and would make it rot. That's what salt does. Maybe when Jesus said to his disciples, you guys are salt, whether you know it or not, he wanted them to be preservative agents in a culture filled with germs that would eventually take it down. The Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 1, describes a culture where the preservative has been removed. I'm not going to look at it right now. You want to look at Romans chapter 1 later this afternoon? That is a culture where the salt, the saltiness is starting to lose its flavor. It's starting to, you know, become no good but to be thrown out and to be, you know, stamped on underfoot. Uh, folks, when I look at our culture all around us, I don't know how you feel about it. I, I really don't know how you feel about it. But as I said before, a lot of times I look at it and I go, Oy vey, are you kidding me? Really? French culture in the 1700s was in the process of whole-scale decay. In fact, in fact, the king in the 1700s had a motto. This is the motto. After me, the deluge. He knew it was coming, King Louis. He knew it was coming. It was just a matter of time. That did come to the French culture, the deluge. And that country, we know history, was absolutely torn apart at the end of that century. It became what became, uh, started as, is, you know, getting guys out of the Bastille, which there were a dozen or so, and, you know, trying, you know, the excesses of the king try, became a bloodletting. Anybody who looked different, anybody who, you know, wasn't, you know, marching, was, they killed them. They brought them up. They cut their heads off. It was a mass bloodletting. It was, it was a terrible thing. Now, I got to tell you, 20 miles across the channel, across the English Channel was another nation, England. Historians write and they tell us that the English society and the English culture was almost a mirror image of the French culture in the second half of the 18th century. It was, it, there was poverty, there was injustice. It was, it, it was a very, very bad situation. But they didn't go through a revolution. And historians have asked, why? Why didn't they? I remember reading Woodrow Wilson, former president, wrote about this. 
Was it their Navy? Was it their suave diplomats? Was it the, a, a huge police force that put more money in the police force? You know what many people believe, and, and secular historians too, they believe that the reason England did not go through the same bloodletting as the French was that in 1703, a man by the name of John Wesley was born in England. And Wesley, in his writings, said that he came upon a time in his life when he felt strangely warmed by God, and he became a Christian. And he began to reach out and to preach the Christian faith. And many historians believe that it was the righteous Methodist movement that spread like salt throughout the land that delivered England from a revolution that 20 miles across the channel, they were pulling people off the streets and out of their homes and killing them. Sinclair Ferguson commenting on the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount is the blessed be the, blessed be the, you know, the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are you if you're poor in spirit, blessed are you the peacemakers. We, we know that, right? He wrote this, Sinclair Ferguson, Christians whose lives exhibit the qualities of the blessed will be a preserving impact upon their society that if left to itself will rot and deteriorate. You know, a lot of times we despair. We say, well, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're the only person. How can, we, how can we influence other people? I don't want to go into it too deeply, but let me just say this. One person has the capacity to change the atmosphere and make it just a little cleaner and a little purer to breathe. If you walk into the room and your coworkers instinctively go, oh, Sally's here, let's watch our language. Don't shy back from that. Don't be embarrassed by that. Know that you have, in a small way, contributed to helping soften the coarseness that has become American society. i got to tell you something right now. Uh, I was always, uh, I always heard men, men are, you know, language. Some, some of the women now that I, that I come upon now, their language, throwing the F-bomb here, there, and everything. And I'm like, what in the world you know, it's, it's, there's, uh, anyway, uh, it, it's, and the kids, and the children too, and there's a coarseness in our culture, in our society. Maybe you, when you walk in, you clean it up this much. That's it, this much you clean it up. Well, you know what? Good for you. Amen to that. He also called them light. In the Sermon on the Mount, he called them light. One of the things about light, listen, the main thing about light, what does it do? Helps people see. Um, so you don't hide it under a lamp. You put it on the stands so people don't stumble. Light makes a difference. When we shine, we become agents of change. Jesus said this, that same section of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5. He said, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He didn't say someone's going to see you, your good deeds, and praise you. Okay, that's not what he said. God's light shines through when, you know, when we live in an awareness of how needy we are. Of how much we are in need of God's grace. Not out of some sort of external righteousness, Sermon on the Mount. Okay, people who live, and I, this has been my experience, people who live in the light most of the time, they don't even know it a lot of times. It's like Stephen. His face is glowing, and he's, you know, he's the only guy that doesn't know it. 
Everybody else sees it, but he doesn't know it. They're not people who brag about it. It's, you know, it'd be like the moon to all the other, you know, celestial spheres saying, hey, look how bright I am. And the sun going, hey, 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 hey. It ain't you. It's me. Right? But that's what, that's what people do. When they shine, they, they, they testify to the grace of God. And folks, even as I alluded to last week, God needs the light as things get darker, he needs the light more and more and more to shine. The blacker the night, the greater the need for light. But you got to know something. Listen, you got to know something. If you determine to be salt and light, if you determine to listen to the words of Jesus, there will be a price that will be paid. There will be a price that you will pay. Whatever the reason Mordecai did not kneel... I don't know. I'm, I'm not 100% sure. I think maybe it was maybe the last one. He was about to pay for it dearly. He was about to pay for it dearly. It seems that at first, uh, uh, what's his name? Haman didn't, didn't really notice that Mordecai didn't kneel. But then he had his administrative assistants. This is why you have administrative assistants, to point things out. Uh, you know, this guy that can't really run, run anything, so we, we, bring, we give him all these people around him. And uh, so they came up to him, and in verse 4, the second, uh, second half of verse 4 said this, Therefore they told Haman about it, about Mordecai not kneeling, uh, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, dot, 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 for he had told them he was a Jew. Now, if he's just disregarding the king, that's enough to get your head cut off. But, uh, when, look, but when you're someone who's very prideful, very arrogant, you know, you must have your way all the time. When somebody kind of goes out of their way to disobey, you know, you'll re- people like that have long memories. They have really long memories. That's why, you know what, you say, man, I thought we had buried this, the hatchet, years ago. People like that, they remember. They remember. Um, and, and his assistants must have known that that last little tidbit about telling him that he was a Jew was enough to put him over the edge. Uh, to go from angry to outright rage. And it did. And you, you know, Pete, look, how did they know? Well, how do you know anybody? You're hanging out with people long enough. You know, you're working with this guy a year and a half, two years. Somebody starts coming out with this stuff, and you're going, where did that come from? Man, I thought I had this guy figured out. I don't know how this guy figured out at all. And, and, and you know, maybe, maybe Haman was making Jewish jokes at the water cooler, you know, so, or something. Or, or over lunch, he, he starts to say little things. And, he, and they knew he couldn't stand the Jews. And he knew about the history because, you know, they all knew about that history. It was something. Um, uh, look, it's hard to keep under wraps when you scorn or show contempt or hatred or marginalize, you know, other people. It's very hard. Sooner or later, it comes out. And I, listen, and I know how it goes. This is how it goes. Whenever you perceive that someone has wronged you, and I remember hearing this. I heard this uh, 10 years ago, at least, from Tim Keller, and I never forgot it. When, when you perceive that someone has wronged you, the first thing that we usually do is that we create a caricature of them in our minds. You know what a caricature is? Caricature uh, is when like, a cartoonist will take a picture of a well-known person and make them look kind of stupid. They'll take like the one feature and they'll blow it up. And we all kind of know it, you know, uh, it's there. 
but they, they make it, you know, whether it's the ears or the nose, you know, the ears or the nose, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, Obama's teeth, Obama's ears, you know, they, so they, you see a lot of things like that. Um, and you reduce them, in a sense, by blowing up in your mind, you know, things maybe in ways that they hurt you even, you know, you look at these, you look at these pictures and obviously, you know, this is not how the people look, but you know who they are, right, when you see them. And what we do, like with Jolie's lips there, we look at something, if someone, in a sense, says something, does something that hurts us, that annoys us, um, we no longer look at them as a whole person. There's one thing that keeps blinking at us. For instance, somebody may lie to us. Maybe they lie twice in the time we know them. All of a sudden, we start talking about them as a liar. They're a liar. You don't trust anything that they say. They're, they're a liar. Or, or someone has betrayed you, and, and all of a sudden, they are a betrayer, capital B. Now, when you lie, when you kind of throw somebody under the bus, well, it's a little bit different. It's, you know, it's, it's very, you're a complex person, and you know what? There are reasons why you do the things that you do. And we all have stories of why. You know, well, there are, my story is a little different. You have to listen to this now, okay? I, you know, look, I, I've always said, when it comes to us, it's complicated, right? It's always complicated. I do things uh, that are, that are so bad things, but I do a lot of things that are good things too. And if people would just take a step back, they would see me as a three-dimensional person. You know, uh, are there people that lie as a way of life? I've met some. I, I can't even believe they, people who lie and lie and lie. Are there, are there some people who have evil designs and filled with hatred? Yes, that sadly there are. But most people are a complicated mix. And most people can't be broken down into a simple statement. They are human beings. They are three-dimensional. You are complicated. You are nuanced. You are a real-life human being. But the person who hurts you or the person who says something about you or the person that you don't like, they're a liar. They, they, you know, don't trust them. We're a little bit, you know, I've lied, yes, but I'm a category above. I'm just a category above. Now, usually in our bitterness, uh, again, we, we, you know, uh, we focus on one area. You know, she's malicious, she's selfish. How about this? How about she's weak? How about that? How about you're weak? How about I'm weak? How do you regard hurtful parents? Are they bad? Are they unloving? You know, as loving as unloving as you could be. Or are they people who perhaps, given their limitations, they did the best they could? Is that possible? But we easily caricature other people. This woman, this guy, they're the worst. We make them into a caricature. We, we, in a sense, dehumanize them. They become nothing more than a cartoon character. And folks, if you kick around a cartoon character, who cares? It's a cartoon character. Big, big, you know, big, big deal. And when you begin to look at a single individual as something less than the complex individual that God has made them to be, it is a small step to looking at everyone who shares a common characteristic, a common heritage, a common religion, or a common diet. 
into the same category. I remember my grandmother telling us that there were people, I'm not going to tell you what their nationality was, lived across the street from them who couldn't stand them, used to call them garlic eaters because they were Italian, called them garlic eaters, and couldn't, just treated them and all the Italians on the block, treated them terribly, just, just because they didn't like the smell of garlic, I guess, which I love, by the way, I got to tell you right now. Um, they, they just, you know what? It, 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 they, they were treated with absolute, you know, outright disdain. Sometimes that disdain for individuals leads to disdain for people. And when the, the hate is stoked enough, you begin to marginalize an entire group and so, seemingly normal people begin to do unspeakable things. How else can you explain the things we have seen, especially in the 20th century? How else do you explain that? That, I think, is the reason behind verse 5. When Haman... It says, verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea, here it goes, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Mordecai's not enough. Anybody that looks like him, smells like him, tastes like him, walks like him, anybody who, you know, anything that has anything to do with him, they're, they're going to. That word is, means, it means heated to bubbling over. He was enraged. But, you know, you just don't go into the king who's, by the way, whose coffers are depleted. Remember we talked about him going to, to war uh, with Greece? Very costly war. The, the, the treasury was very much depleted. So um, you don't go into the, that guy, a guy like that and say, you know what, I want to annihilate several hundred thousand of your taxpayers. I mean, just uh, uh, you know, on, a, on a crass level alone, you don't do that. So you've got to kind of think your way through this one. You don't go in and say, oh, king, you know what, kill them because I don't like them. Uh, that's a hard sell. So what does he do? He builds a case on lies, half-truths, and tries to convince the king that these people needed to be murdered. Now, I'm not going to reread it. You read it. Liz read it. You read it later. But what he does is he says a few things. Number one, he says that these people are scattered abroad, which actually was true. The Jews were everywhere in the kingdom of the Persian kingdom. Then he says that their customs are different than everyone else's. Well, not totally true. Somewhat true, not totally true. Remember what we said, that the Jews had, had you know, stayed and to some degree had become part of the greater Persian culture. And then he says they do not obey the law. That was a lie. It was an absolute lie. They were not lawbreakers. But listen, when a dictator hears that there's a movement among a particular people to rebel against his iron rule, it will get his attention. They're different, they're difficult, they're dangerous. And what do you do with dangerous people? If you're a dictator, you probably kill them. That's what you do. And so Haman says to Xerxes, uh, verse 8, it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. And if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And just to sweeten the deal, remember his coffers were really low. I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administration for the royal treasury. I know it's going to cost a little money to kill all these people, but guess what? I'm going to pick up the tab. And so an edict was written by Haman himself, and it's translated into every language, into every dialogue. 
to every people group in the vast kingdom. And it says in verse 12, look at it. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned, and they wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors, and the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by courier to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. Two things. Two things. Really quickly. Two things. Notice the piling up of verbs. Did you catch that? It was just me. Destroy. Kill. Annihilate. Yeah, we get it. Okay, we, 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 you don't like them. We, 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 we get women, children, young, old. And, and if you're feeling squeamish about killing, you know, infants or anything like that, uh, let me add a little spice. Uh, after you kill the whole family, their house is yours. You can take over their house. Haman had an all-consuming hatred of God's people, and he set himself to plan and to execute a holocaust. You know what that word means, Holocaust? We, we know it's, it has to do, you know, World War II, Jews, you know, that kind of thing. Basically, the, what the word means, it's a sacrifice that is totally consumed by fire. There's nothing left. It is totally, you know, like Elijah on the mountain. Totally, that was a Holocaust. It was totally consumed. It is hatred that is so deep that as I'm looking at it this week and I'm reading about it, I say, you know what? It is almost inhuman. And folks, I've got to tell you something. It is. It is. The word that is used in verse 13 that is translated annihilate is a Hebrew word, abad. If you go over to Revelation chapter 9, very interesting, okay? Okay, you know, he wants to annihilate them. You go over to Revelation chapter 9 and verse 11, and this is what it says. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss. Who's the angel of the abyss? Okay, the angel of the abyss whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon. You see anything between the two words? I mean, uh, from the, the, the root is in the name of Satan, okay? John 10.10 10 says this. The thief, who's the thief in John 10.10? 10? Satan. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. These, we get it. We're not stupid. We get what you're saying, okay? You're not the key. Who is behind Satan's mad rage against the Jews. Who is behind Satan's mad rage against the people of God? It is the devil himself. I have come that you may have life and have it full. Again, Beth Moore, let me, let me quote something she said. Satan's agenda is to kill and destroy anything dear to God. Satan has operated through the generations, primarily through human agencies, human agents. You need not even wonder if the devil was at work in and through Haman. The tie between Haman and the devil makes more than reasonable sense. Yes, it does. As the Jews were targeted by Haman, folks, i got to tell you, the early early Christian history tells us that Christians were targeted by the Roman Empire years later. 
you know, who, who, like Haman, demanded that they bow the knee and give the same kind of honor that Haman demanded, honor and respect that included once a year, every Christian, everybody in the whole empire, had to put a little pinch of incense on an altar and, and, and bow to the deity who was Caesar. And a lot of Christians said, you know what, we're, we're law-abiding citizens, but you know what, we can't do that. And they went to their deaths. And they were lit up at the Roman circus as lights. Can't you see Satan in the evil empires that have risen up in the 20th century and in this century to persecute God's people? In the last hundred years, and I checked this out again this week, because I, I, I keep checking this out because I, I, part of me doesn't believe it. In the last hundred years, there have been more Christians killed than in the last 2,000 years combined. See, we don't, we don't hear about it. People are dying all over. We need to pray. There are Christians in North Korea. There are Christian brothers and sisters in North Korea. There is a testimony in North Korea. There is a testimony in Somalia, in Afghanistan, in Sudan, in Saudi Arabia. And they're going through physical suffering, and they're going through psychological suffering, and they're going through emotional suffering. And sometimes we wonder why certain people have it in for it. You ever wonder that? Why certain people got it in for you? What's wrong with this guy? I mean, I'm a pretty nice person. I never did anything to them. Okay, we're not perfect, but you know they disdain us. It's almost unexplainable. Why do you? Why do we think that if Satan has used his minions over the centuries against his people in a thousand ways, that we would be different? Why? Could it be that the reason the teacher seems to hate us, the reason the coworker has always treated us as if we had some contagious disease, is because they see God in us, and it's not so much us that they are reacting against. It is God in us. And Satan looks at that, and it drives him mad. And you drive him mad. Without removing personal responsibility from them, perhaps they've just become the puppets of the one who hates you, who hates God, who violently hates God. But when we stand with God, don't be surprised if you incur the wrath of a world that is hostile to him. Haman didn't merely want to kill the Jews. He wanted to subject them to the most torture he possibly could. 11 months. They had to wait 11 months. Could you imagine waiting 11 months to die? I mean, at first you're starting off, and, and the first thing, my, my reaction is, oh, let's go, man. Let's run. Let's run. Remember the map? I, should have, I should, probably should have it up there. Put, put it up there. There's not, you're not, where are you running? Where, where, where are you running? You're not running anywhere. I mean, you, run, you could run. In, in 11 months, you could run 500 miles. Guess what? Still Persia. So unless you're living on the outskirts, you know, uh, so you're, not, you're not running anywhere. Could you imagine as your neighbors, and you know what I did this week? I started reading again about the Rwandan genocide. 800,000 killed in the matter of weeks, most by machete. Here's the thing. I'm going over. i got to hurry. Listen. Um, uh, when the killing started, it started in neighborhoods that had always gotten along. The Tutsi and the Hutu, they, the children played with each other. They had barbecues in their backyards with each other. And when the killing started, something took over, and they murdered their neighbors. They murdered them in cold blood. Listen, Satan is active. And as, can you imagine these 11 months as they're thinking, how, how are they going to kill? How's my neighbor going to kill me? 
How can I barricade myself? There's too many of them. There's, there's 50 of them for every one of us. It's going to happen. Could you, you know what? Uh, uh, one of the ways that Satan attacks us, you know what he does? He attacks the future. He attacks the future with us. Moms and dads, the uh, first time you let your 17-year-old drive the car, hey, here's the keys. You know, they got their license. They're going, I mean, you were like, oh, great. Have a good time. You let them go, and you got down on your knees in the kitchen, and you started praying, God, please, please. I mean, they're not that good. They're really not that good. Please, just, just get them. And then they get older. You say, well, they're going to get older. It's not going to bother so much. I'm not going to worry so much. And then you, you're worrying that they're going to marry a jerk. And then all of a sudden, they start having kids, and now there's another whole generation to worry about. A whole generation. That's just what we needed, right? And Satan comes in. And he says, you know what? I'm going to get your kids. I'm going to take your grandkids. They're mine. And in the dark moments, we listen to the voice of the evil one. And we cower. Because he wants, he's a thief and he wants to steal our peace. He, you know what we are to him? We're a number. We're a number to the evil one. But to God, you know what? He knows our name. He knows the number of hairs in our heads. He knows everything about us. Before one day was lived, they had been written in his holy book. And then you come to the end of the chapter, and it says in verse 15, the king and Haman sat down to drink. Eh, let's toast it is, you know. Let's toast And the city of Susa was bewildered. They were in shock. When you stand with God, you will incur wrath of a world hostile to God himself. But I also believe that God has a way of taking what the world throws at us and redeeming it for our good and for his glory. He is working all the time, as shocking as things may seem. Here's the second thing I wanted to say. I'm going to close with this. The date. You notice the date the royal secretaries drew up the order to annihilate the Jews in the 13th day of the first month. Uh, they drew it up, uh, which means that it was probably being distributed you know, to all the different lands and all, all over the kingdom on the 14th. It was written up on the 13th. It was distributed on the 14th. You know what the 14th was? Passover. The 14th was Passover. What a coincidence. Wow, could you imagine <laughs> Passover, where the people of God were commemorating God's miraculous intervention in freeing his people from harsh oppressors and, you know, being true to his word and true to Abraham, saying that he was going to preserve a people for himself and he was going to bless the whole world through them. And now they're getting word that their entire race is about to be wiped from the face of the earth. Quite a coincidence, wouldn't you say? The irony is inescapable. You know what Proverbs 16.33 says? It says, the lot is cast into the lap. But every decision is from the Lord. God is even turning them dice over for the day and the time and the hour. I was reading Isaiah earlier this week. And God, through the prophet, addresses his people who it seems were always looking to earthly means to provi- provide and protect and defend uh, you know, to the, the point that they... They rarely gave God a thought to enter into their daily struggles and their daily life. They just, you know, help us, God, blah, blah, you know. But, you know, God was not a part of their life. And Isaiah writes in chapter 31, he says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, 
but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. You want to go to Egypt? Go to Egypt. They'll protect you for a couple of months, maybe a couple of years. But you know what? You're going to fall. Like all the rest, you're going to fall. Come to the only one who can protect you. Come to the only one who loves you. Come to the only one who has had designs on you from before the time that you were born. Come to the Lord God, Jehovah. That's what he was saying. Now, there was a church that was going through a very rough time. Churches do that. They go through seasons and finances are down and there were some thorny issues that they were going through. Morale was off and it was very noticeable. And one of the leaders came to the pastor as they tend to do in times like that and said, you know what? Here's what's transpiring. What do you think? And, you know, and the pastor thought for a moment, and, uh, you know, pastors usually blame themselves, you know, when things are going wrong, and he kind of scratched his chin, and he says, well, he says, I guess all we can do is pray. And the person looked at him with this startled expression and said, has it come to that? <laughs> is it possible for God's people to become so complacent, so comfortable in a foreign land that God deliberately allows them to be pushed into a corner and into a place where every human escape route has been blocked in order to speak to them whose ears, for whatever reason, have been shut. You think that's possible? You think God does that? Is it possible that the present distress that you are in was allowed by the unseen stage director for a greater purpose? Just a few verses later, the prophet says this, Then the eyes of those who see will no longer be closed, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Next time, next time, we're going to see the result of this impending death sentence had on Queen Esther and on God's people. Listen, God never takes his eyes off his children. He loves them. Uh, and it, that was displayed in the cross of Calvary, in the cross of Jesus Christ. He is mindful of the sparrow when the sparrow hits the ground. He knows the number of hairs in our head. You know what? But in times when things are really rough, he seems to disappear. He does not disappear when things seem bleak. He is still there. His light is shining. I love the picture through the slats. It's coming through. We don't see it all the time. But he's there. When we stand with God and incur the wrath of a hostile world, you've got to know something. God is working. He is still on the throne. He is still using you. On the cross, the Savior stood in the crosshairs of the full fury of the evil one who thought he won. You know, but God's good plans and good purposes could not be overcome. The cross shows me one thing. God has redemptive purposes in everything. And we can be filled with hope purpose and grace forevermore. Amen. Amen.